You're listening to the Yoga Inspiration Podcast with me, your host, Kino McGregor. I created this series to keep you inspired to get on the mat every day so that you can practice yoga and change your world, starting from the inside out, one breath at a time. Thanks so much for listening. Your support means everything to me. Hey everyone, it's Kino here. You are listening to Seek Up, the Yoga Inspiration Show. This episode is a conversation with Sunaina Madhav Dasi, who is a multidimensional human that holds many identities. They immigrated from Bangalore, India in 1996 and are currently settled on the ancestral lands of the Arapaho Kayan and the Yuti nations. Sunaina is a mixed race person, Indo-Aryan and Dravidian, and speaks Tamil as their mother tongue. Their yoga practice is deeply rooted in Hinduism, bhakti, and social justice. They follow the lineage and teachings of their ancestors and Sri Paramahansa Vishwananda as they took initiation into Hari Bhakta Sampradaya. Sunaina uses their neurodivergent superpowers to create a more community-centered world that focuses on individual healing by embracing one's own unique purpose. They believe that the answer is already within us when we choose self-love, accountability, and awareness. With their unique lens of the yogic path, Sunaina creates spaces to reclaim traditional practices, decolonize minds, and abolish oppressive systems that affect us at an energetic and societal level. Outside of their practice, they enjoy modeling, photography, dancing, and directing photo shoots. Sunaina is also a founding teacher at Ganesha Space, a 501c3 nonprofit based in New York City that focuses on the intersection of yoga and social justice. They identify as non-binary, queer, immigrant, and a disruptor. Sunaina is also a yoga mentor for Susana Bhaktaki. I hope you enjoy this episode and open your heart and mind to the radiant flow of energy in this beautiful conversation. Hi, everyone. It's Kino here. Thanks so much for tuning in to Seek Up the Yoga Inspiration podcast. I am here with Sunaina Madhav Dasi, who is a multidimensional yoga guide, founding teacher at Ganesh Space, a 501c3 nonprofit based in New York City that focuses on the intersection of yoga and social justice. They identify as non-binary, queer, immigrant, and a disruptor. Sunaina is also a yoga mentor for Susana Bhaktaki, who many of you know does amazing work at that intersection of yoga and social justice in the in this space that we're in currently, in the online space and also in person. So Sunaina, thank you so much for joining me. I'm really excited to dive into this conversation with you. Mm, Jay Gurudev, thank you so much, Kino. I'm really excited to be here and appreciate you taking the time to be a beautiful reflection. <laughs> so for people who don't know you, would you please share a little bit about how you came to yoga, how you came to the United States and how you came to sit at this intersection of yoga and social justice? Yeah. So, you know, I guess how I came to yoga was the first thing you, you asked. And, you know, I came to yoga when I was in my mother's womb. And I guess my mother came to yoga when she was in my grandmother's womb. And so I really... I feel like it's something that is in my DNA and it's something that's in my blood. And, um, you know, my mom was practicing yoga when she was pregnant with me. And even when I was a baby, I was born in Bangalore, India. Um, we would always go to the temple and listen to Kirtan and bhajans and all of those 
parts were such a core facet of my identity growing up. Um, so I would say that was probably my very first introduction to yoga is through my family and through my lineage. And, um, yeah, I, I love that you asked also about how I came to America because, you know, my parents are immigrants. I'm also an immigrant. I was born in Bangalore. And then my dad got a corporate job um, for corporate office max, actually, <laughs> and moved to Singapore. We lived in Singapore for a year and then we immigrated to Ohio, um, Cleveland, Ohio, where I wow. spent my early years um, before moving to Boulder, Colorado. <laughs> So that's kind of where I grew up. Wow. How did that feel to come from, you know, Bangalore to Ohio? Yeah, luckily I, you know, I don't have a strong recollection because I was just two years old as a baby, but I'm very, very thankful. You know, when I was five years old, my mom put me on an airplane <laughs> and she took, you know, one month at the end of the, the kindergarten time and one month at the beginning of the first grade time. And she just took me out of school and she sent me to India to go live with my grandmother alone on a plane. So I'm five years old. I fly to India and I'm, you know, there for four months. And I did that every single year until I moved to Colorado. So literally until like middle school age. So I was, you know, going back to India all the time. And that's the reason that I speak my mother tongue Tamil so fluently is because my mom was just so good about making sure that I had a taste of my culture and that I was going back home to India. Yeah. So it it was very, it was very different. Like I remember coming back to Ohio and I just had picked up an Indian accent, right? Cause I was like hanging out with all these Indian kids and all of my friends in Ohio would like make fun of me. Like, why are you talking like that? Like what's going on? You know, like, and so I, I remember having to code switch a lot when I was younger and figuring out like, you know, what accent to use and what environment. And that was also like a huge part of, you know, my childhood growing up. So kind of feeling like, I don't know where I belong. Am I Indian? Am I American? Like, where's the middle path? I was always searching. Did you feel that same code switch when you were in India as well? Oh, absolutely. I mean, anytime I would speak Tamil, I would always, there would always be some comment about like my accent or not being able to speak it um, well enough. And at the same time, there was a comparison of like, you know, my family talking to my cousins and saying like, you know, you only speak English at home. Like, look at Sunaina. Like, they they came all the way from America and speak better Tamil than you do. You know, so it was kind of a both and. Like, I've seen I've seen the whole spectrum of it. How how interesting to mm-hmm. sit at that intersection and be able to fluently um, move between these two languages, which are so much a part of your you know formative identity. I mean, being from mixed race background myself, I wish that my mom and my grandfather had taken pains to teach me Japanese and Mm. make me learn that it's something that I really, there's like something in my soul that just longs for that. And there's no way I'm going to get that back in the same sense that I could have. And I'm, I'm, I'm envious of your, you know, your experience in that way to be able to actually intersect the two, the two worlds rather than mm. perhaps feeling cut off and then needing to go build a bridge. And so I, I, I think that's a beautiful place that you sit at in that, in that, in that regard. Mm. And in, has that sort of in between space that you sit at and, and this unique intersection, did that inform um, your um, voice in regards to bringing social justice to the yoga practice? And I also feel like perhaps for people who are tuning in that many people seem to associate yoga only with yoga asana, 
So I feel like I also want you to be able to share your definition of what yoga is. So when we talk about yoga and social justice, we're not just thinking about, you know, legs behind the head, but maybe there's something more to the equation when, when you, when you mean the word. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for mentioning all of that and sharing a part of your truth as well. Like I also am a mixed race person, so I'm not fully like one caste or one part of India. Um, so my dad is North Indian and my mom is South Indian. So I'm actually mixed caste as well. Um, my dad's ancestors are from North India. They're Marathi. So I'm Indo-Aryan, half Indo-Aryan. Um, and then my my mom is Tamil, Tamilian and from Tamil Nadu. So, you know, Dravidian ancestors, which are complete polar opposites, right? Like Dravidian people came from Africa, Indo-Aryan people came from Northern Europe and then mixed with the Indus Valley civilization of people. And so, you know, coming into a yoga space and especially um, focusing on the Indian yoga space, um, I found that there wasn't a lot of space for me to show up wholly as I am because, uh, because I am a mixed caste and a mixed race person. And that's not something that is openly talked about. And there's absolutely an, a hierarchy. Um, and for any of you who study Ambedkar, I don't know if you're familiar with Ambedkar, who is uh, an amazing activist um, in the early 1920s to 30s in India, who talks about um, um, you know, abolishing caste and how important that is. I mean, that's absolutely a huge part of my social justice journey now. And it also helped me realize the nuances that come that come with being a mixed caste and a mixed race person um, and how it's a little bit more difficult to navigate spaces when you're always kind of the black sheep, like the outsider um, kind of person. And especially in Western yoga, um, where, you, you know, like you said, everything is based off of asana and you walk into a room and you only see a whole bunch of skinny, thin, white, able-bodied women in all of these difficult poses. And you're like, where are the bhajans? Where's the kirtan? Where's the mantra? Where are the mudras, right? Like all of these other intersections of yoga and because that's what I know to be yoga, right? Like I grew up just singing devotional songs to Ganesha um, before school every morning growing up. And that's what I know to be yoga. And for me, that's exactly what it is. It's it's connecting with the divinity within you and understanding that it's literally within each cell of your body and, and it's everywhere else too, right? Like it is the divine experiencing the divine within the divine surrounded by the divine. Like that is what yoga is, um, is, is that centered present moment awareness of always being in the now. Um, and so, yeah, like social justice and the intersection of that understanding is also difficult because, you know, our mind fluctuates. Our mind has all of these attachments and things that we bind to and, you know, distractions. Like, for example, I have I have ADHD um, and it's something that I have to work with on a daily basis of, you know, how do I get my mind to be grounded for a moment, take a deep breath for a moment, show up exactly where I am and not have all of these other floodgates of what happened yesterday or the day before, even in my childhood, big T trauma, little T trauma, all of these things that come in that keep taking me away from the now. Right. Um, and social justice really has helped me with that because I realized 
that I'm not the only one, right? I'm not the only one going through this. Everybody else is going through it too and on different levels. And so acknowledging and understanding how the systems that we have in place are either aiding us or oppressing us um, is very, very important in order to get people the tools they need to come back to themselves, right? Because all of the obstacles, while, you know, many people will say, oh, there's obstacles of your mind and, you know, all of these vittis and things, right? There's actually real obstacles also in, in the real world, like, you know, money and access to food and water and healthcare. And if we only talk about the spiritual aspect of things with, you know, the blockages that happen in the mind, we're not really acknowledging the real struggles that folks have to go through in order to even get to a place where they can focus on their breath or focus on their mind. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's really important for me. Um, and, and was especially important growing up here because I also, you know, went through a lot of emotional and emotional and borderline physical abuse growing up. Um, and I think that's very normalized in Indian families. Um, and also a lot of enmeshment and codependency. Um, and it took years of therapy for me. And I mean, I'm still in therapy, right. Um, to move through all of those things and understand that that is also a part of the practice. That's also a deep part of my practice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When you said you know, that yoga is defined as the, you know, the divine, seeing the divine within the context of the divine. It reminded me of that, um, one of the Shanti mantras, Purnamadak, Purnamidam, Purnamidam, you know, I'm not yes. saying it for everyone. But, <laughs> but so there's this, there's this really beautiful concept of this kind of, you know, um, hundred thousand year view of the perfection of all that is. Mm. And it's, it's true. You know, it's absolutely true. And it's timelessly true. And at the same time, there are some individuals who would read that and then um, conflate that kind of hundred thousand year view with the, with the idea that, well, it all is perfect as it is. Therefore we shouldn't change anything. And therefore you're suffering whatever trauma you've experienced is perfect. So it's all perfect. So essentially use it as mm. a spiritual bypass. And which, which in my, in my view seems like deeply offensive to the spiritual intention of some sacred mantra like this. And at the same time, just plain old missing the point. Yeah. So have you had kind of pushback from that spiritual bypassing element of the yoga world when presenting social justice? And, and, and if so, how do you, have you responded from it? Of course. I mean, you know, just like so many teachers, I often receive pushback or folks who tell me my, you know, whatever is right or wrong. And again, like you have to take it with a grain of salt. Um, and I always come back to the yamas and the niyamas, right. Of first brahmacharya, right. Like really conserving your energy. Where is your energy going? How can you conserve it? Um, is there like this vortex of a person over here, just like <laughs> sucking my energy out, right? Like trying to tell me what's right and what's wrong and all this stuff. And am I allowing them to do that by constantly feeding into it? Right. Am I like, am I giving into it? Am I, do I not have strong enough boundaries, um, to set when, when talking about these subjects, like you can absolutely agree to disagree and that's fine. And you can leave it at that, right? Like there doesn't need to be a deeper, more energy into something that is not bringing you closer to yourself. That's how I feel. Um, and at this point with 
where I'm at, like, I really am about conserving my energy. Uh, (laughs) You know, like I have gone through so many, so many cases of appropriation and having to call people in. Um, And I really, I actually appreciate saying calling in instead of calling out. Now that's like another vocabulary that I feel like I've um, adapted to, because I feel like when you're calling out, you're literally pushing someone to the outside and you're saying like, like you versus me, right? Like they did X, Y, and Z instead of like uh, inviting them in. And so I think that, you know, the first thing you can do is invite them in, invite them in for a conversation. Maybe it's facilitated, maybe not, you know, play it by ear. But I think that when it comes specifically to doing labor, um, emotional labor, physical labor, educational labor, things like that, um, I'm going to call upon my white accomplices and my white allies, right? Who are also in the yoga space to help me. Um, because I absolutely am not gonna sit out here and give my time and energy and life to educating people. Um, when there are other folks who are more than happy to do it, who are more than happy to help me, um, and to assist me. And I think that that's another really beautiful part about with the intersection of yoga and social justice is that you're not doing it alone. There's so much community. There's so much support from people and that, while your own individual journey is yours, um, to go through and to find your, um, you know, the glimpses of your Atma of this universal life energy that lives in every single person. Um, you can do that by acknowledging and knowing that it's all, um, that we're all doing it together and we're just walking each other home. Um, and we're on, different paths leading to the same destination, right? Um, It's like that story, I'm sure you've heard of it, uh, of there's like, you know, three or four um, men and they, and they can't see anything and they're Mm -hmm. all touching different parts of the elephant. Right. Mm -hmm. And one, one person's touching the tail and one's touching the foot and one's touching the trunk. And they're like, no, it's like this, it's fluffy, it's long, it's straight, it's this and that, but it's all just the elephant. Right. So that's kind of how I feel about that. Yeah. I love that you brought in the need for these kind of conversations to happen in community. So I'd love to for you to share a little bit about your community, including what your lineage is, what tradition you consider yourself a part of. And I know that you recently came back from uh, a lineage-based trip to, 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 to a spiritual trip to India. So I was wondering if you could share about, about your community and about that trip and that, that initiation that you went on. Yeah, absolutely. So I really think of myself, my ego self, Sunaina Madhavdasi as a global, a global person, you know, like I have so much community all over the world. Um, and I, I think I, I love that so much. Like I love connecting from people with people from different cultures and different places. And specifically this last time I had gone to India to see my mother and my grandmother, I hadn't been back in maybe three years, I think. So it was a, it was quite a while that I hadn't gone back to India. And so I was there and, you know, obviously the divine has ulterior motives for everything. Like, am I really in India for that? I don't know, you know, like there's something else going on here. So one of my good friends and um, teachers, Rishi Chibananda, who I have been practicing a mantra with, Om Namo Narayana, uh, 
they, he told me, you know, you should check out this ashram in Vrindavan. Um, it's a really beautiful ashram. Stay there, do some seva, you know, build some, build some spiritual net worth. Right. And then, you know, see how, see how everything resonates with you. So I'm getting ready to go to Vrindavan on this trip and, you know, meet this new community of people. And, uh, you know, I was very excited. And of course, the night before I leave, my mom and I get into a small argument. She's like, you should pack this white sari for your trip. And I was like, mom, I don't wear saris. They're too hard to tie. Like, I don't, you know, I don't have time for that. Like, I'm just going to wear my two piece gagra or I'm going to wear churidar and I'll be fine. She's like, no, 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 no. Take this. I I told you, I don't have room in my bag. Please stop. Like, you know, I'm going to pack what I want. So then I have, you know, she just keeps pressing me. So I was like, you know what, whatever, I'm just going to squeeze it in there in the side of my bag. So I go to India or go to Vrindavan and, um, and stay at this ashram. I'm doing seva there. I'm really connecting with all of the people there. And there was actually about um, maybe like 150 Russian folks who had flown in um, to be in community with my Guruji, my current Guruji, who wasn't my guru then, um, Guru Paramahamsa Vishwananda. And it's, it's his ashram there. And I get there and I'm so shocked. I've been in India for three or four months. I, I show up in the middle of Vrindavan. I walk into this place and there's like a hundred or so like white Russian people all wearing saris. And I'm like, am I being tested right now? Like what is going on? Like I just had done a lecture about appropriation the day before. And so I was all, all you know, feeling all this energy and I'm like, what's going on? Like, I'm going to just take a deep breath and, you know, ask someone what's going on. And so then, yeah, I was there for two day, two or three days before Guruji came. Um, and of course the morning that he arrives, I was on a yoga call. So I literally had headphones in and other people in the class were facilitating. It was one of Susanna's, um, one of Susanna's mentor groups. And, um, and then I see Guruji and he gets out of the car and immediately this energy takes over my whole body and I fall to the ground and I prostrate and I look behind me shortly after and all 200 people are prostrating as well. Right. And, and for me, it was something that was like, I, I really felt that I had lost control of my body. Like I don't just prostrate in front of any person, (laughs) you know, it's like only my, the elders in my family really. Um, and of course my altar, um, but it, it was very intense. And so I had two, two or three days with him and did some kirtan, did some singing. And, you know, every time I somehow was at the very front of everything, just like right at, at his feet. And it was, it was magical. It was beautiful. And then finally, you know, they said, well, you have to be following the teachings of Guruji for at least one or two years before you can even be initiated. And at this point, I was only doing this one mantra that Rishi had given me, right? Like I had only just been introduced to him maybe six months previous um, or maybe even a little bit less. And so I asked like, well, can I, you know, can I be initiated? Like, and he has to be the one who approves it. And normally he, he, Gurus don't give initiation. It's always the Swamis um, who give, Swami and Swaminis who give initiation. And the really beautiful thing about Vrindavan and specifically this ashram, Sri Giridardam ashram in Vrindavan, is that it was so queer friendly. And I was, I was shocked. You know, I, I walked in the first day and there was a gay pujari doing 
doing puja and had talked to me very, very openly about all of these things. And, and they were Indian, you know? And I was like, I was shocked. I've never seen this in my life, especially not in India, especially not in Vrindavan, right? Like it was wild. So a few days pass and they send the list to Guruji to see if, you know, he'll accept and he accepted. And, you know, all of us are, you know, just staying up super late, doing all of our japa, doing, you know, singing, doing all of these just like communal acts and it's maybe two 30 in the morning and um, Guruji comes downstairs and says, we're doing initiation right now. And if you don't have white, you can't be initiated. So then luckily my mom had pressed me to bring this white sari. I run to my room. I get this white sari. I come back out and everyone is chanting uh, that mantra for about an hour beforehand um, all together. And I feel this energy in my Muladhar chakra. Like I feel it starting to swirl and it's super grounding and I, I can't stop smiling and my eyes are just watering because I'm so happy. And I, I don't really know what's going on. It's like goosebumps all the time. Like I'm just constantly in this state. And then, um, we all take initiation and in the moment, like right as we're circling around him to, to get it, he yells at one person and is like, you can't be here. I told, I didn't approve you get out. And I thought he was talking to me and I, I almost had like a mini heart attack in that moment, but it wasn't me. It was just someone else. Thank God. <laughs> it was, it was wild though, you know, and, and even in the moment that I took Darshan from him and his hand touched the top of my head and gave me the blessing, I felt this energy rise from the base of my spine all the way up you know, through the top of my head. And it was a very euphoric feeling. It was all honestly almost orgasmic. You know, it felt like, it felt like so much pleasure. Um, and, and whatever that energy was, it transferred up to Sahasrara and then it went directly into his hand. Um, and then I was given my name and I was, um, given a tilak and it was, beautiful. It was beautiful. I didn't even wash my face that night because I didn't want my deluxe to, to go away. I, I kept it for 48 hours, <laughs> but it was one of the most magical experiences of my life. It was so spiritual. I know that, um, deeply in my heart that it was multiple lifetimes, right. Of being in this community. Like you, uh, you, you know, you asked me like, where, who is your community? Like the community that I'm with, all of the people I'm around, including you, this is not our first lifetime meeting. And I feel that I feel that way, you know, I don't know how you feel, but you know, it's been, it's been thousands upon thousands upon years, you know, like maybe we were amoebas one day floating in a river 8 million years ago. You know what I'm saying? And you just like floated near me one day, like, right. in like this point in our lives. And then we were and then we were floating down together. Um, and I am a true believer that it's, you know, time is cyclical and that our community is cyclical and that as we evolve and we break these karmic knots that were, you know, that bind us and tie us to certain people or, um, certain activities that we do or, or whatever the, whatever the thing is that's binding you, um, that there's liberation in that and that there's beauty in that. And that like community is such an important part of liberation, you know, and fight and finding that for yourself. So that was my experience in Vrindavan and getting initiated. Um, and it, it was just wild. 
Like it was, I, I've never experienced anything like that in my life. Um, and then I, you know, when you get initiated, you, you have to wear these Tulsi, um, Tulsi beads. Um, and so that, you know, I have them on almost all the time, except for if I, you know, do any photo shoots or things like that. But I also have this picture of Guruji here around my neck. Um, that's him. If you can see it, (laughs) sorry, y'all can't see it, um, on the podcast, but, uh, yeah, just always very close to my heart. And it's, it's a really beautiful relationship because everybody has their own unique relationship to Guruji. And I, I feel that way also about our individual relationships, right? Like each one of us has such a unique relationship with each other that can never be replicated or duplicated. Like I can't have this relationship with you, Kino, that somebody else has with you, right? Like ours is so unique for what it is and it can never be, that can never be taken away. And I think that's also a really beautiful um, aspect of, incarnating here and being here and experiencing life and meeting new people. Thank you so much for sharing that. That brings your, it brings me back to some of the peak experiences of my own journey. And I just so appreciate that. And Mm. I'm wondering how have you felt since, you know, is there a sense of integration? Is there a sense of, gosh, I've got to go back and you're planning another trip or where are you now? Right now I'm in full release. Like I am in like, you know, it is all, I mean, I'm not to say that I'm not taking action, but you know, I know that I'm guided. I know I'm protected. I'm blessed and I'm allowing, I'm allowing myself to be where I need to be. Right. I'm allowing myself to be where Guruji needs me to be. Um, and I know that that is exactly aligned with what's happening in my life. And like, how has it been? Everything has been fast forwarded. Like if you, from that moment, if you just want to press like double speed, triple speed, like that's how everything has felt, including the downloads, including the emotions, including just like everything. My whole, my whole practice has just been like super fast forwarded, you know? Um, and I have a lot of like my sadhana, especially like I'm, I feel really attached like to my, my daily sadhana. And, you know, luckily it's not more than 30 minutes a day (laughs) because, (laughs) um, you know, I just, I don't know if I could do it if it was like three hours a day, but I, I think that's really important to have this daily practice that you go to, um, that you feel really grounded in no matter what it is. Um, and even if it's just something that you can do for yourself. So like my mantra practice and, um, just a little bit of chanting that I do every day, like that is what it is for me. Yeah, my Japa Mantra. So important to have that daily sadhana, that daily Mm. time to connect in. And so important for people to understand that sadhana does not necessarily mean asanas, that it's this daily ritual of devotion and connection. And it, you know, it could take many different forms depending on what your unique expression of that is. But some people just merely equate sadhana with, you know, the asana practice. So I think it's super important that, you know, you shared the sadhana that's not exclusively rooted in asanas. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, a big part of my sadhana, like I said, is doing my 108 minimum japa practice once daily, and then a small water offering 
um, or a flower offering for my deities on my altar. Um, and then that's, that's about it, you know? And if I really am pressed for time and I don't, and I can't, I just can't make myself do my Japa Mantra one day, um, I'll just do a small flower water offering. Right. And I think it's really important to remember too, in the Bhagavad Gita, there's this one verse, I think it's chapter nine. I can't remember the verse, but it, you know, it talks about how no matter what you offer, whether it be a flower a water, a leaf to the divine, and it comes from your heart, it'll be accepted. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's really beautiful, you know, that we don't have to do all of these intense rituals and all of this, you know, like hours of practice a day in order for our love to be received. Um, and cause, because that's really all it is. It's just our love. It's what lives in our heart. Um, and that can show up in so many different ways. Mm. Where do you see sit on the asana spectrum? Is asana a part of your daily practice or weekly practice? Where do you sit on that spectrum? Yeah, absolutely. I would say weekly practice more than daily practice. Um, I mean, I do a little bit of asana, like bed yoga, I would say bed asana, right? Like wake up in the morning, do some seated cat cows, do some stretches some forward folds maybe. Um, and then I get up and I start my day and, um, I definitely am rooted in Ashtanga yoga. I probably practice now once every week or once every two weeks, like doing the whole sequence. Um, but again, that's just half primary series, right? Like that's, that's not even the whole sequence. <laughs> um, and so that's kind of where I am on my asana journey. Apart from that, I, you know, just listen to my body and listen to what I need. I have, we have a puppy here, my partner and I, um, his name is Smokey. He's super cute. And, you know, we take him to the park, take him on hikes, spend time in nature, go on walks. Um, I'm a very active person in general, um, and I love being outside. I need the sunshine. Vitamin D is like so <laughs> important to all parts of my emotional, mental, spiritual well-being, um, especially just like, you know. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I feel I was going to say, I feel you on that one. Yeah. Like just like right when the morning sun is rising, doing yeah. like, you know, five Surya Namaskaram, like, you know, just starting just right at that sunrise time. Like it's just so beautiful, you know? And, um, I also like my sleep schedule recently has been a little bit off, but in the most blessed way possible where I've been going to bed around eight 30. And then I've been waking up at like three or 4am, um, right at Brahma Muhurtam time, which yeah. is, you know, a really, really energetically auspicious, mm -hmm. um, energy heightened time of the day. And then I do all of my, you know, my, 30 minute to one hour sadhana and then the sun is rising and I make my chai and it's, you know, and then at maybe at 10 or 11 AM, I take a nap for two hours and it's great. <laughs> yeah. I feel like this is yeah. the program I'm on when I'm in Mysore. So this yeah. is, this is uh, you know, if, if my body could do that naturally, uh, that'd be wonderful. But some, somehow, somehow Miami doesn't necessarily have that energy, but we've got the sun. Mm. I, you know, there are some people that um, I think so much equate yoga asana with uh, sort of like yoga that they're, they're, they almost start to import some of the, you know, negative self-talk that maybe preceded their yoga practice into their asana journey. So I know mm. some people that, and I think I did this at the beginning of my practice, equating 
you know, spiritual development with asana achievement. And then this comes kind of into a a, a sort of like a a head front collision with the notion of body positivity. So, you know, so this is an interesting space. I think every, particularly Western yoga practitioner, someone who enters yoga from Western perspective at some point needs to make peace with, make peace within that and to understand uh, where body positivity falls within, within yoga. And especially if someone's practicing a heavily asana grounded um, experience. So where, where does that, where does that sit for you? And, And also how has body positivity influenced gender identity in your journey? Mm. These are great questions. So, you know, first I just want to touch on what you had said earlier about like, you know, Western yoga and this like heavy focus on asana. And I also want to state that like a lot of this perpetuated by media, right? Like we can't really acknowledge um, how we've gotten here. Like, why is it that people are so focused on the body without acknowledging that media and advertisements and social media, Instagram, all of these things play such an, a heavy part into it, right? Like when you Google yoga, or if you just search a hashtag for yoga, like you don't see the yamas, the niyamas, bhajans, Ganesha, Krishna, like, um, you know, you don't see all these deities or all of this, all of this, um, beautiful spiritual knowledge that goes beyond asana, right? You only see a lot of thin, able-bodied white women doing forward folds, doing um, really difficult, maybe, you know, yoga asana poses. And I think that plays into this internal brainwashing um, that happens due to external programming because we're programmed by media to see what yoga is and then internalize it and say like, Oh, I can't do that with my body. So I'm not, I can't practice yoga. I, you know, I'm not able-bodied enough. I'm not skinny enough. I'm not pretty enough. All of these things come to come to mind. And, you know, what you were saying earlier as well reminds me that while that is an important thing to unlearn that everybody, like you said, is on their own journey and we can only create the space that we needed for when we were younger, like our inner child self. Right. Um, and, and know and hope and pray that that is going to influence and change how other people view what yoga is. And so for me, when it comes to body positive, body positivity and body liberation, I think that a lot of it is tied to allowing and inviting my body to be as it is without needing to change it, without needing to enhance it, without needing to, it to to make it a certain type of way by exercising, by doing yoga. Like, oh, I want to get this flexible so that I can take a photo so or so I can look a certain way so I can wear certain clothing so I have a six pack. So I have, you know, like all of these different like body things that we need. And, you know, for me, body liberation and body positivity came around when I started growing my, all my body hair out. Um, because I kept asking myself, like, why is it that I keep put putting sugar on my legs and ripping my hair out? Like, why am I right? Um, and my mom, a little backstory, my mom was a beautician and a cosmetologist. And she 
I grew up watching her thread other people's eyebrows. She was an eyebrow threader and um, she had a small shop in the back of our house. And so, you know, growing up, I was again, really programmed and conditioned to like see a lot of these people walk into the salon looking or feeling or acting a certain way. And then after their service and after their haircut or their eyebrows or their nails or whatever, they leave feeling and looking and being another type of way. Right. So I thought, okay, well, the only way that I could feel more positive or more energetic or more whatever is if I modified something on my body. And so I actually, I was nannying for a family in Boulder and they had two little boys. And, um, one day, you know, because every time you wax your legs, you have to let your hair grow back out before you can wax it again. Um, and they had never, you know, really seen leg hair before. And they were like, well, our mom doesn't have leg hair. Like, why do you grow leg hair? Right. And so it was this conversation of, you know, I really started just leaving my leg hair and my armpit hair out so that these small boys could understand that it was just a normal part. Like you just grow hair on your body and that's just a part of being human, right? Like we're human and we grow hair and that's what it is. Um, and then after that, I, I continued to keep my body hair, but I still was obsessively getting my eyebrows threaded. And I was like, why can't I release this? Right? Like, what is it about having a unibrow? Um, that is so bothersome for me. Like it really like these tiny hairs that come down here. Like, why do I feel the need to pluck them out and take them? Right. Like, and really deep swadhyaya is what it is. It was self-study, right? Like literally studying my own body, um, and understanding and knowing why is it that I feel this way and constantly asking myself why, why, why? Um, and then finally I stopped threading my eyebrows as well. And I let it grow out. And even when I went to India, like I was made fun of, right. For like, Oh my gosh, look at your eyebrows. Like you should go to the eyebrow threader down the, down the street. Like <laughs> your eyebrows look beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. I love my eyebrows and or I, even, you know, my eyebrow, I guess, but <laughs> I, I was going to say, I can't believe you don't. I mean, maybe, maybe it's zoom doing beautiful things, but I, I, I thought it's, you know, it looked to me like you still do the eyebrows. So they have a beautiful shape. Yeah. And, and that's the beautiful thing is that, you know, each person in the way that they're face and their hair and all of the things about them, the way it naturally is to me is so beautiful. You know, like I just, even like the little chin hairs and the random little scraggly fuzz on your face. Like, you know, like I love all of it. I love all of it. Um, and for myself. And so, you know, a big part of my body positivity journey for me, um, was taking photos of myself naked and nude, um, for myself, not for anybody else, not posting them in places, but just watching my body transform over the years. I probably started when I was maybe like 18 or 19. Um, and, and it's been about 10 years now. And so like every month or, you know, every few months, I'm just like taking naked pictures of my body, um, and just looking at them and appreciating them. And also the sacred practice of abhyanga, um, self oil massage on your body is also another way of like affirming to yourself. Like, I love my calves. I love my thighs. I love my, you know, and kind of like brainwashing yourself into like, into saying it to yourself all the time, um, has really helped me. And I, of course, can't talk about body liberation or body positivity without acknowledging how many 
fat body activists there are who have paved the way for me to even talk about something like body liberation, right? Because I, you know, I completely acknowledge and know that I'm a skinny, able-bodied, thin person. Like I am a runway model as well. Right. So like you have, you like a lot of times you have to have a certain body type for that. Um, and I do fit that body type. So, um, yeah, like I, I really appreciate the question about body liberation and, um, and, and yeah, you asked me about my gender identity as well. Right. Like I came out as non, or I guess I came into myself as non, non non-binary, about four or five years ago. And I started using they, she pronouns and really exploring, um, what is gender? What is sexuality? How are those two things related? How are they different? You know, like how have I been conditioned by society to show up? How has heteronormativity played a huge part of who I am? Like, for me, I've always known that I was queer, that I was gay from a very, very young age. It's been something that I had to keep hidden for a very long time. Um, and then as I was in college alone, right away from my family, I was doing a lot more exploring and going on more dates with women or other non-binary people, gender non-conforming people, trans people, um, for example, which you know helped me understand that I'm pansexual. Sexual, um, which means that I, you know, I'm attracted to people who, no matter how they identify themselves. So you could identify yourself in whatever way. I don't care. I'll be attracted to you regardless. Um, if I'm attracted to you, right? <laughs> um, yeah, and, and you know that really allowed me to see gender as something that's more fluid. And I feel like I was always put in this category of like, she, her woman, um, somebody with a uterus, somebody with breasts. Um, and because of all of these constructs, because they really are societal constructs, I was told what to be, I was told how to be. Um, and so through exploring all of those things, and again, deep, deep self-inquiry, I came to the conclusion that I'm a very fluid person. And some days I wake up and I feel like, you know, just super strong and fierce and intense. And I feel like more sun energy, right? And I feel um, more grounded energy. And then other days I wake up and I feel so like soft and emotional and like flowery, right? And like just very, very moon energy um, and super in my feelings. Um, And both of those are okay. And so I took on a non-binary identity only going by they, them pronouns about three years ago. Um, and so again, like that's been a really deep part of my yoga journey and practice as well. I think it sounds really inspiring and beautiful to, uh, kind of transcend or be liberated from the gender binary, you know, as you were describing the, the sort of box that you were placed in and many, uh, you know, uh, many others are placed in by the sheer fact of their biology. You know, you're a person with a uterus, therefore, this is your path. You're a person with breasts, therefore, this is your path. You're a person that has, you know, this these features, so this is your path. And this has been defined by us. And then 
maybe we don't want to do that. And to liberate yourself from that gender binary paves the way for so many people, whether or not they are gender nonconforming, just to be free from that particular solidified path. And I think mm. that, that that benefits everyone. You know, it benefits uh, someone who identifies as, as a man who maybe doesn't, you know, as a, you know, in the male gender, that then this is this particular path that male gender has to fit on. And then as more people come, you know, come in and into themselves as non-binary, then, then suddenly they're given permission to redefine, well, what is it, what does masculinity mean? And then what does femininity mean? Because if, if I, if there are others who are not in that box. And then when people meet someone like you that maybe they would have put in a box and then they realize, well, wait a minute, they're out there doing something that doesn't conform. So maybe I can be inspired by that too. And you see so much of this in the yoga world, right? Like of the binary talk, like Mm -hmm. the left and the right side were representing the feminine and the masculine side. Right. And I always encourage folks to like, ask yourself, like, can we talk about the same energies in a way that's inclusive for everyone? Like, you know, like I love that sun and the moon energy, like even like just the different energies that these planets bring to us like they're so relatable everybody like knows what it's like when the sun hits you right and you're like and you're energized and you're intense and you're fierce and you're bright and you're you know versus the moon energy where you're uh, it's a little more like romantic and soft and you know just like there's so many different ways to talk about gender and sexuality that's fluid and you know I shared with you earlier that today's a really auspicious day um it's Akshaya Tritya and it's all you know it's said to be the day that Ganesha wrote the Mahabharat when Sage Vyasha was speaking it with his elephant tusk and Ganesha is a perfect example of gender fluidity. And I don't think many people know about it because there is a form of Ganesha called Vinayaki. And Vinayaki was depicted as, I think, early as second century CE in the Indus Valley civilization of of having breasts. Um, And there's even depictions of Ganesha giving birth, right? Um, And when we look at spirituality and our ancestors and our roots, we see that even the deities, even the gods have gender fluidity and that there are so, there's so much sexuality that is such so deeply rooted in spirituality that we just cannot ignore. I mean, you've been to Mysore. I'm sure you've gone to some temples in Mysore and you see all of the depictions of the Mahabharat laid out and there are sex scenes, just, you know what I'm saying? Like carved into the wall and there are naked deities or naked people in the wall. But yet if I come to a temple, I need to cover my breasts. I need to cover my body. I need to cover my head, right? And so you see that dichotomy in play even in India, you see it even in spirituality and religion. And I think it's important to name that that is what has happened because of patriarchy, because of colonization, because of white supremacy culture, like all of those things have shifted so that now the power goes to the people who are in dominant culture, which is cis hetero men. You know, I'm just saying that. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and in order to really find liberation, we have to understand and honor that 
you know, birthing people are really the people with the power, right? Like you're bringing life into this world. You're creating life. And I think that there's so much beauty and power in that and in embodying and embracing your own liberation through sacred sexuality, because that's what sex is like. It is sacred. Um, and I, you know, I could go off about the whole like like uh, Kama Sutra, you know, Kama Sutra and everybody thinking that Kama Sutra is like only these sex positions, like, you know, Cosmopolitan did a Kama Sutra article, right? Of like, what is Kama Sutra, right? Um, and I feel like for me, that's a, that's a classic example of what is appropriation, right? And how are these sacred um, tools taken and commodified and then being sold back to um, society in a way that creates a power imbalance and creates harm. Mm -hmm. So, and the intention behind something like that, it's not like someone goes in with an intention of, of trying to share what they've learned about Kama Sutra, but the idea of, you know, some editors in a magazine were like, this will probably get some headlines. Like let's put this on there. And then the models that they choose to, you know, tell that story, sort of perpetuate the status quo. So it's a, it's a very different sort of path to, you know, um, sharing the knowledge that's out there. Absolutely. I feel like everyone who's practicing yoga these days, if there's one thing that, um, you know, is so important, it's, it's to really embrace the totality of, of, of what yoga is rather than just, mm. you know, just the asana aspect to, to, to go deeply into the philosophical aspects, to go deeply into the lineage, to go deeply into, you know, decolonizing the, the, the messaging of yoga and to sort of unpack one's own intersection. And there's mm. one last intersection that I think uh, would be useful for us to talk about. And that's the intersection between yoga and art. And I know you had wanted to talk about that. So what, what is your relationship to, to art and how does that relate to yoga? Do you consider yourself an artist on, on, on some level? And yeah. um, how does that all relate? Yeah, I absolutely do consider myself an artist. Um, I mean, I consider everybody an artist. Like we are all creators, right? Like we are made in the image of a creator and we are therefore creators. Like we're creating our reality and we're creating everything around us. Um, and so I think for me, like my art shows up in my modeling, in my makeup artistry skills, um, in my directing, my photography, like all of these ways that I can express something that can't be expressed through words or through movement. Um, I can express it through a picture, you know, like that's saying that a picture has a thousand words, right? Um, I, I really love that because for me, creating is in whatever way you may create, like whether you're just like writing in a journal and you're creating your thoughts on paper, like that also for me is art um, because it's unique to you. It's unique to each person. And I think it's important to know that like art and activism and yoga all have this like overlapping, um, overlapping thing going on, you know, like it's, it's really beautiful for me to be able to, for example, like take a picture or direct a photo shoot of myself where, you know, I'm showing my body hair and then I, you know, maybe did my makeup in a certain way and I'm wearing, you know, some type of traditional Indian jewelry in the shoot and, you know, like 
that says so many different things. Like not only is it honoring my roots and honoring my culture, but it's, you know, tying in body liberation and being able to show up authentically as myself and being proud to show up authentically as myself. And it's also showing that I am creating this look that's on my face. I'm using all of these tools to like literally paint my face into something that is different and unique and, you know, in whatever way I want to make it that day. Um, and I, I love the, the word artivism as it was coined in LA by the Chicanos, um, there as, you know, allowing art and activism to find an intersectionality in a space, um, to come together and really invite change, um, and invite, like you said, liberation for other people, you know, like invite other people to look at what you're doing and feel empowered. And then maybe one day create something like that for themselves that speaks to what they are a part of. And it also ties back to community, right? Like a lot of the art that I create, I could not do it alone. Um, I need like a photographer. I need a videographer. I need other models. I need, you know, I have all of these visions that don't, that aren't just mine, right? Like they include so many other people in the community of like, what am I showing, trying to showcase? How am I showcasing it? Um, and, who and who is being represented? Who's on camera? Who am I? Who am I capturing? What is their essence? What do they? What do they want to want to share? Right? And how is that tied into the message I want to share? Um, so there's a lot. There's a lot with artivism and yoga as well. And I, I really, I love um, talking about honoring your roots, you know, and yoga empowering you to do that because. It doesn't have to be just going deeper into the teachings of yoga, like specifically, like it doesn't have to be Patanjali's yoga sutras or the Vedas or the Upanishads or any of those teachings. Like, you know, it could also be going into your own culture, going into your own traditions, like looking back at your lineage, right. And saying like, what are the practices that my ancestors had? What are the ways that they created what are the ways that, how did their art look, right? And inviting that into yourself to honor your own lineage and to honor your own ancestors. Um, and I think that there's a fine line between using yoga as a tool for self for self-discovery of like going deeper into your own culture and then using yoga because you don't want to go into your own culture and you want to take from another culture. Right. Um, and so I think that it's a both and right. Like you can use what you learn in yoga, in the teachings that are given, and you can apply them to yourselves and to yourself and go deeper into your own culture. And, you know, you don't have to just only go deeper into yoga, 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 yoga. Right. Um, because then you're just taking whatever it is and you're saying like, no, that's mine. Um, and yoga is again, like there is no mind in yoga, right? Like that's such an ego-based um, thing anyway. I, I like this idea of sort of acknowledging one's own intersectionality, right? So there are people who, who go say, really immerse themselves in yoga philosophy. And I think that's wonderful. I know so many friends of mine in the Ashtanga community have somehow like moved to Mysore for years. And then, you know, they, they somehow feel like this is my culture, but at some moment they do leave, you know, and then they go back to the US or back to Europe or in some cases like back to Australia. So in some, you know, white dominant culture. So it was like, 
Well, you were immersed in it for a moment. And at some moment, you have to also acknowledge your intersection of that you had this privilege to just pick up and go back and, you know, live in, you know, live anywhere in the United States or anywhere in Europe at any moment. And, and you know, you got something wonderful from those experiences and that changed you and honor that and, you know, and, mm. and respect it. And at the same time, acknowledge your intersection. You know, where do you, at what cultural points do you sit at? And, at what cultural points of privilege and disadvantage do you sit at? And to really mm. have each individual person go through that because, you know, um, there are many people that are escaping their culture. You're absolutely right about that. Yeah. In some ways, rejecting their culture rather than, say, making peace with the harms that have been done in their ancestry, making, you know, coming to terms with some of the, you know, some of the, 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 the privilege that, they might sit at from the benefits of their ancestry, whether mm. that's a religious-based um, lineage or whether that's, you know, a genetic-based lineage or an economic-based mm. lineage or a gender-based lineage. So it's so important to have that intersection. I, I, I had to come to terms with the different intersections that I sat and wasn't, wasn't necessarily easy. So mm. there's a work in progress, as you said, a both and an and. And I, um, I think what you're doing is so inspirational and I've, I've really enjoyed this time with you and I'd love for you to share with people where they can find more of you. You know, can someone go into the Ganesh space in New York and take a class with you or how can people find you, your art, your teaching? Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much, Kino, for this time again. Like I truly just from the bottom of my heart, I feel so much appreciation and love for you. Um, and I feel really, really grateful to be here. So if you'd like to contact me or get in touch with me, you can find me on my Instagram. It's at Sunaina, S-U number nine, N-A-H. You can also find me teaching some classes at Alchemistic Studio online. I teach one class a week yoga nidra on Sunday evenings. And then yeah, Ganesh space has a, a lot of amazing events. We're doing this wonderful pride event coming up called pride and purpose. Um, so I will be hosting the panel for that. Um, I also may have some offerings there. Apart from that, I do one-on-one -on -one coaching and one-on-one -on -one classes as well. Um, you can shoot me an email, sunaina, S-U-9-N-A-H at gmail.com. If you're interested in that, um, just as a heads up, I mostly take South Asian and Basie clients. So if you're in that kind of realm, I would love to hear from you, especially. I am open to all people. I just, you know, I that's where my focus is right now. And yeah, if you also are interested in taking 200 and 300 hours, hit up Susanna Barkataki. I am a mentor for her. If you'd like to spend some long, genuine time with me, there are six month programs for the 200 and 300 hour. Would love to see you there to deepen your knowledge and really get started on your journey with yoga and social justice, finding the intersection there. Um, yeah. Thank you so much, Kino. Appreciate you deeply, deeply, deeply. Um, thank feeling, you so much. Feeling so I, blessed. Me too. I've really enjoyed this time. Thank you. Thank you so much. Hey there, it's Kino here. I just wanted to thank you for tuning in to my podcast. Your support and your time and your attention really mean a lot to me. If you're enjoying this podcast series, you can find the full-length videos on my online channel, OMSTARS, and that's at 
www.omstars.com. You can redeem a 14-day free trial and get access to our full library of over 3,000 classes and also practice yoga with me online. I'd also love to see you in class sometime. So you can find my full live in-person teaching schedule on my website, which is kinoyoga.com. And if you haven't checked out my books, I'd absolutely be honored if you'd check those out. You can find those available at any online bookseller. The Yoga Inspiration Podcast is designed to keep you inspired to get on the mat. And I hope you're leaving each episode with a little glimmer and spark of the spirit which is the true heart of the yoga method. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. May you be filled with love. Namaste.